My first job was as an usher at a local movie theater. I was paid to tear tickets, sweep popcorn, pick up soda cups, and sneak away to watch various movies in 15 to 20 minute chunks. While sweeping near the manager's kiosk in the lobby one night, a concerned patron came in to tell our staff that there was a man needing immediate medical attention. She explained there was a vehicle idling in the parking lot with the car door open and the driver collapsed, seemingly lifeless, on the ground next to it. My manager walked to the parking lot with a walkie-talkie, which she quickly used to tell us to call the paramedics, though she believed the man to be dead. The firemen were the first to respond and begin CPR. When I saw them arrive, I let my co-workers know that I needed to check on the manager and deliver an important message. But there was no message, no need for me to check anything. I had no reason to be in that parking lot at all, except a shameful one. I was curious to see the dead body. Scramble Transmissions is a podcast about anthology television and a human condition. These series vary in release dates and ratings, so the episodes discussed may contain nudity, sexual content, graphic violence, and outdated cultural references. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. active phone, your turned off television, your blank computer screen. What do you see? It's likely yourself staring back at you, but not your normal reflection. It's something darker, something more sinister. It is that reflection from the screens of our collective addiction that inspired the name of the 2011 anthology series, Black Mirror. By the late aughts, there were only a few new anthology series on the air, and none of them had gained the popularity of series such as Twilight Zone or Tales from the Crypt. But that didn't stop one British television writer and producer from pitching a new television drama with the same goal that Rod Serling had had 50 years earlier. Charles Brooker wanted to present contemporary social commentary through a dark, dystopian, and sci-fi lens. And there was one major focus at the center of that lens, our dependency on technology. In an article titled, Charlie Brooker, The Dark Side of Our Gadget Addiction, The Guardian quotes Brooker as saying, If technology is a drug, and it does feel like a drug, then what precisely are the side effects? This area, between delighted and discomfort, is where Black Mirror is set. The Black Mirror of the title is the one you'll find on every wall, on every desk, in the palm of every hand, the cold shiny screen of a TV, a monitor, a smartphone. Black Mirror premiered on the British Public Service Network Channel 4 on December 4, 2011. After two successful seasons, the series was added to Netflix's catalog, where it found a large receptive audience. Within a couple years, Netflix bought the program and exclusively released three additional seasons, as well as an interactive special. Today we're unscrambling the premiere episode of Black Mirror titled The National Anthem, For listeners who may not have had the chance to watch the episode, here's the rundown. The British Prime Minister receives a call early in the morning. 
A princess in the royal family has been abducted, and the kidnappers only demand one thing is ransom. The prime minister must have real, unsimulated sex with a pig, and on live television. The broadcast cannot be edited or censored in any way. Despite attempts by the government to locate the perpetrator, prevent the media from running the story, and convince citizens to ignore the situation, the deadline approaches. At the end of the day, and under insurmountable pressure, the Prime Minister concedes to the kidnappers' demands, and the entire world watches. The twist is that the princess is released 30 minutes prior to the event, but not a soul in the country notices, as all eyes are focused on the grotesque and disturbing act occurring on the screens in front of them. My guest to discuss this episode is my good friend Tom. Tom is a fellow writer and podcast host in Sydney, Australia. He also, like me, has a certain fondness for the strange and bizarre, which is why I thought he'd be perfect to discuss Black Mirror. I'm Adam Timish, and this is Scrambled Transmissions. So why don't we kind of just jump in and maybe just getting your initial impressions first. Just overall, what you, would you think of this episode? Um, well, I mean, I've only actually seen a handful of episodes of Black Mirror. And um, as, as you might suspect, this was the first one I watched maybe a few years ago when, I, when a friend kind of recommended it to me. And uh, first time watching it, I found it really sort of depressing and haunting. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the second time around, I, I guess I found parts of it quite a lot funnier and sort of got the, the black comedy elements a little bit more, but it, it, it was definitely, um, it's still confronting and it's, it's still full on too. Like some of it takes on a different tone now. Cause to me, princess Susanna reads very much as being kind of like Prince Andrew's daughters, um, Beatrice and Eugenie. And of course, now we know that Prince Andrew was good mates with Jeffrey Epstein, so some of those elements hit a little bit differently than, um, uh, you know, 2011 when this came out. And it still, even now, has kind of that 20 minutes into the future sort of feel. Like, it doesn't really show you any technology that's radically implausible today or anything like that. So you're not, like, a diehard fan that watches every time a, a season drops on netflix or anything yeah no i'm not like a mirror head or, or i don't know what they're calling themselves <laughs> <laughs> for some reason when i had seen this episode the first time i assumed that this took place over like a week period of time or, or several days but he's actually only given maybe 12 like 10 to 12 hours at the most yeah, it's it's. I think he finds out about it at like eight in the morning or something. You know, initially no one takes the idea that he might have to have sex with this pig very seriously, but of course things take a bit of a turn along the way, and it's like you're doing this, otherwise everyone's going to be in a lot more trouble. You know? <laughs> right? Yeah, it it becomes more urgent, I, I guess, to figure out something. You know, as the day goes on, until they're they're left with the ultimate decision of whether or not they have to pull the trigger on on meeting this demand as this is kind of unraveling the first thing that they're doing is they're they're trying to control the narrative of it so they're putting uh, what's called a, a d notice onto the uh, news agencies to try and prevent them from reporting on it the united states i don't believe has anything similar to this d notice uh, system however i noticed that australia does have something similar to that what tends to happen here is sometimes there are court orders that are handed out where certain legal matters can't be discussed in the press, because usually because there's an impending trial around something and they don't want to prejudice jury. 
So it's it's very strange, and I don't think it's actually used that often, but certainly sometimes there is that kind of legal enforcement of stuff with um with, with that kind of thing in the press over here. A couple times we see that despite the reporters kind of complying with the D-notices initially, they're still trying to gather as much information as they can and kind of going to... There's one par- reporter in particular that goes to pretty extreme lengths to try and get information. And one of the ways she does that is she's implying that she'll, she'll provide sexual favors to somebody on the inside uh, for information. And she's even sending nude pictures of herself in order to gain that information. So I guess my question is, Tom, in the, in the context of this being an episode that ends with a, a really sexually explicit act... Yeah. What do you what do you think it's trying to say about the exchange of sex for information earlier in the episode? Does that question make sense? What I what I kind of took away from it was that there's this element of we're trying to make you more thoughtful about how you consume media and the way you consume it. Part of that is even in the premise itself of the show. Like I think it sort of tries to do this thing where it's it's trying to make the viewer complicit where it's the idea of like, oh, you're just as bad as these people who did these horrible things because you're watching it happen and being entertained by it. Right. I don't think it's fully successful on that front just because I didn't really come away from it thinking like, oh, I need to be more careful about the media I consume and how I consume it. I came away thinking, oh, wow, the dude actually fucked a pig, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> right, right. Uh, so mixed mix results on that one, but that's what I think they were maybe trying to get at. So, yeah. Right. It, it's almost as though the the severity of the plot overshadowed any any sort of thematic moral they were trying to promote there. I think to a degree, and I, but I, I mean, we see it in other kind of, um, you, you see that approach in kind of other extreme cinema, and sometimes it does work. By 2011, we all kind of knew, like, shitty things could happen as a result of the internet, you know? Right. Uh, and that the media, particularly the British media, could be really shitty. So I, I don't, you know, I think it has mixed results, but I'm sure it provoked some thought for a few people, so. Yeah, I I guess I was just trying to see if they were attempting to connect that reporter to the prime minister, but if they were, I I don't know that it was successful. And I, I think that's probably pretty in line with what you're, what you're yeah, saying. I, I feel I, like there were some things that they were trying to do that just didn't quite get across the, the finish line. I felt that may, with, with the prime minister as well, too, they were to- sort of talking to a degree about how much, um, public opinion is shaped by the press and how uh, no matter who you are, it's still kind of, you're, you're still at the, the whims of the press because initially they're, they're sort of telling him, look, it's all right, you're never going to have to have sex with this pig. You know, it's not going to happen. They put in a few fail-safes for it, all of which fail. Like the porn actor who comes in and is going to get his face mapped with the um with the prime minister. Yeah. Uh, but then there's that kind of thing where they... At the end, they're just telling him, no, you have to do this. And, like, if you don't do it, we can't guarantee your safety. And it's all in part because they've lost control of the narrative in and of itself, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they literally are at the whims of this, like, spoiled popular princess, you know? <laughs> and it's it's not her fault. She's in that position of what happens to her having such import to so many people because of the way the media has shaped her in the first place. So... Maybe they were trying to connect the sex angle for for the for the reporter and the prime minister, but I'm not. If they were, it definitely didn't work. 
I, I guess, you know, if we could take away anything, it would be the suggestion that her act seems not not very harmful, I guess, overall, whereas mm. his is seem as much more public and disgusting, even though their intentions were quite opposite. You know, she was in kind of more of a self-serving position to help herself by selling her body, essentially, whereas he was doing it to save another human, you know. For so, England, you know. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> exactly. Going back to the, the body double, they do in the episode hire, as you had previously mentioned, a porn star to step in to be a deep fake for the prime minister. And ultimately they get caught doing that and that plan falls apart. But when the actor comes in, he's kind of excitedly like saying things like, all right, where's my co-star at? Yeah, yeah. Does this guy know that he's being asked to have sex with a pig? Because he seemed like he was just showing up for a normal shoot yeah i don't think he knew and i also (laughs) think they were going to kill him after he was done oh is that is that how you read that well yeah because he says oh where should i send the invoice mate and he's like there won't be an invoice oh okay (laughs) yeah yeah. i i took that more as they were just going to be everything was going to be under the table but yeah you're you're probably right that could be something where that guy was was doomed to begin with yeah yeah it's uh... i just can't see i just can't see that being in the job description and showing up that excited about it no no i'm pretty sure he he wasn't wasn't in the loop on what was going to happen yeah there was uh but he was funny that guy i I quite liked that that character (laughs) (laughs) so let's spend the last few minutes of this segment Sure. Talking about the actual scene at the at the very end. I've always thought, you know, Black Mirror tends to blend, you know, sci-fi and horror elements. And, and I certainly think that this scene gets pretty heavy into kind of the, the horror elements of, of the show. What were your thoughts of just, just this scene? And I, I don't know, how difficult was it for you to see this this part? I th- I think on first viewing, I was really impressed that they'd got the same pig who plays Peppa Pig's mum. Like that that was that really <laughs> like I was like, well, you know, like you know, good for you. You probably didn't have to take these kinds of parts by this point in your career, but you know, obviously it was about the art for her, so that's good. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, no. On, on a on a more serious note, I um yeah, the first time I watched it, I found it very confronting. Um. When I watched it again yesterday to kind of prep for this, uh, I was a bit more blasé about it. Like, it still played very gross, and there were certain details I didn't remember, like where he's sort of, they've got the close-up of his face while he's crying and that kind of thing. I think I was mostly impressed that they'd gone through with it, as opposed to having, like, a last-minute out for him or something like that. Yeah, which is, I, I think, what you're kind of conditioned to expect in a lot of TV shows. Uh, for there to kind of be this this last minute, or oh, just ju- ju- Deus Ex Machina, essentially, you know. But yeah, it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, and they really build up his whole descent towards this pig. You know, he's walking in the hallway, and he's got the aide that's telling him, "We've positioned visual aids out of your eyesight or out of the camera sight, you know, in case you need assistance while you're doing this." I I think that they, they, they kind of imply they pumped him up with Viagra and whatnot too, or right. something, don't they? Like, or, or I don't think they call it Viagra, but I I got the impression they'd sort of drugged him up with something so that he. Yeah, no, I I agree, and 
you know, they also say, you know, based on studies we have, it's better for you to take as long as you need. Yeah. Because if you if you rush through it, it'll appear that you've enjoyed it. Yeah, and that you're you're keen for this, like yeah. <laughs> right. And just you know, and all of this while he's walking towards this and then he goes in, you know, and just they put in the most disgusting noises of this pig eating out of this trough. Just yeah. just really sloshing. I mean, they really took care to make sure that you are effectively disgusted <laughs> as you know, by what, what you're seeing on screen. If you had come across this organically on your own, either through Netflix or if it was playing on a, a channel where you're at, would this episode have gripped you enough to have continued watching this series? Yeah, no, no, I th- I think it's good. Um, like, I, I do like what I've seen of Black Mirror. I do want to go back and watch more. I, I think in part it, it's been one of those things where all of a sudden, the you, you know, I came to it a bit later and now there's all these seasons to catch up on. And, like, you know, the most recent season had Miley Cyrus in it, which uh, is absolutely not a selling point for me. So <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, th- I think there's an element of that. Like, there was so much of it already that I'm like, well, do I want to start from the beginning or? you know um i i think that the episode in and of itself is quite um yeah it is quite tense it's gripping it keeps keeps you engaged up until the end um i think maybe the big problem is that i think black mirror as a whole what i've seen of it insists upon itself a little uh and i think that that's partly the nature of tv like tv is always going to be running a bit behind what's happening online so these things that might have been very bold statements about what media and the internet etc is doing to us like it it kind of came a few years too late like i like i think it would have been better commentary if it had come out maybe five or six years beforehand but you know now it's the show where the dude has sex with the pig so yeah (laughs) (laughs) right well and that's and that's why i think for a first episode to air this was a, a bold move. And I realize that most first episodes have to be a little bit bold and edgy to, yes. to grip people. <laughs> yeah. But I felt like this was bold and edgy in a way that will push people away more than it will drive people towards <laughs> towards the show. Well, I was this. it's interesting you say that because I was describing it to my wife yesterday too. And she was like, how did this show get people watching it? And I said, well... You have to remember, like, so much of English TV is just inherently depressing anyway. Like, you know, so, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I said, like, and I'm going to speak very broadly here, and I said, like, you know, so so take this with a grain of salt, but I did kind of say, like, but how shocking it is is probably novel to a lot of Americans, because al- although, like, you know, of course, that you know, I don't, I don't want to put everything in the same basket, but, like, if if you're used to watching something like The Big Bang Theory and then you see Black Mirror, <laughs> you know, like it's yeah, a, yeah, like I can see why you might watch that and be like, oh, there's there's more of this. Like, oh, I guess I better check it out. Or, but conversely, as you say, there'd be a lot of people who'd be like, uh, you know, I don't want this on my Christian TV. <laughs> Over the years, when I've suggested that people watch Black Mirror. I always am hesitant because I'm like, but they're going to have to get through that first episode. Maybe just skip the first episode. (laughs) And I either tell them, I'm like, think about not watching the first episode first, or at least be aware there are better things to come beyond that episode. It's worth watching. I I do think it's worth watching. I just think that um, it's not... uh... 
it's it's aged, but not in the ways you might think it has. I guess, yeah. So, but but it, but it's not uh, like it's a strong debut for good and bad reasons. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, so I wouldn't I wouldn't tell anyone don't watch it, but maybe I wouldn't recommend it to my mum, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> Um for listeners who don't know, um so a few years after this episode came out, there was a book published about David Cameron which was called Call Me Dave. So it was an unauthorized biography of him. It describes an incident in there that's been come to known as Piggate. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it alleged that British Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, had placed a quote-unquote private part of his anatomy into a dead pig's head as an initiation rite at university. <laughs> so it is hard to untangle whether this story is actually true or not. Uh, certainly other people have denied that this guy was a member of the society he was allegedly being initiated into but might have attended one or two of their parties. Certainly it raises questions about who else in British politics have been putting their penis into a dead pig's head. Um, right. You know, because it, it seems to be one of those, like, hazing things, the way that people do when they want to join frats and that kind of thing, as far as I can tell. <laughs> but, yeah, so this story, although it was published in 2015, so, of course, it's easy to, to retroactively fit with it. It does seem to have been doing the rounds for a few years beforehand, so... Mm-hmm. But I think at this point, like, I don't know that it's... Uh, I don't know whether it's true or not, but I think David Cameron's disliked enough that a lot of people want to believe it's true, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, and also... To me, that story does not sound that shocking. And the only reason for that, I think, is because when you talk about, again, the reputation of collegiate fraternities, Mm. it seems like weird, gross stuff is being expected of people all the time. And so when I originally heard that David Cameron story about him putting his penis in a pig's mouth, I didn't think that it was that... I, I don't know. I guess I didn't think it was as damning as maybe other people, as other people took it, you know? And I'm I'm not a person that was in a fraternity, and I've certainly never done anything like that, but it's... <laughs> over, over here in the States, we, we get a cow. It's not, it's not a pig's head. <laughs> right. like, you know, it's different, you know? The... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, but it's like, it sounds like fraternity dudes do that crap all the time, you know? Um, I think obviously at one level there's the consideration that this man is now the prime minister, <laughs> or right, was at yeah. the time. Right, right. I, I um, guess that's always a, a thing. Yeah, like because I mean stories about various presidents have come out that while they didn't involve that, they were kind of like, oh yeah, when they're initiated into Sigma Chi, whatever, you know, like oh they stuck something in their butt or that kind of thing. Like, and and you <laughs> right. kind of go, well. Taken in isolation, that's just strange as opposed to, like, something that he should resign over, you know? Like, it's, exactly. it's very... But but with that said, yeah, the, I think the whole, like, weird hazing and initiation pranks are, like, really... My understanding of hazing when I first heard about it as a kid was kind of like, I don't know, birthday punches on the arm or something like that. You know, which is pretty tame and harmless stuff. Like, maybe not ideal, but but pretty harmless. Not... And then when I started hearing about some of the various initiation things that frats do, I was like, what the hell? Because <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. frats are not really a thing over here in Australia. <laughs> so, yeah. so, yeah, to me, it smacks very much of like, 
Yeah, it's gross. Yeah, it's weird that anyone was asking him to do it. But I would guarantee you there would be uh, plenty of other people who are also in very high-profile positions in the British government who've done equally as bad, if not worse, things. So Absolutely. But, you know, um, if anyone asks you to join a group where they say to join, you've got to stick your private parts into a dead pig, I would say I don't want to join that society personally. Humanity has had a long fascination with the bizarre and macabre. It's the reason we say things such as, it's like a car crash, you can't look away. From circus sideshows and curiosity shops, to the Guinness Book of World Records and Ripley's Believe It or Not, people have, for better or worse, always found distraction in the different or unsettling. But how much is too much? At what point does a normal interest in graphic imagery become a problematic moral issue? My guest Tom has an almost encyclopedic knowledge of the darker sides of pop culture. On his podcast, the very similarly titled Lupine Transmissions, Tom delves into the strange corners of film, TV, literature, music, and anything else he can find. In fact, he was gracious enough to have me on a recent episode of Lupine Transmissions to discuss one of our favorite horror movies, Hellraiser, if you want to check that out. But in a moment, you'll hear Tom discuss things like the shock website, Rotten.com. That site ran from 1996 to 2012, and housed morbid images such as violent acts, deformities, autopsy photographs, perverse sex acts, and disturbing historical curiosities. Tom will also discuss the film Faces of Death from 1978. If you haven't heard of Faces of Death, This documentary-style film showed a variety of gruesome deaths, both real and simulated, human and animal. Subsequently, it was one of those films that was quickly and frequently banned, giving it the cult status it has today. I say all of this because I believe Tom has a unique perspective on the events depicted in the first episode of Black Mirror, as well as what they may say about humanity's base desire for drama and violence. To me, it reads very much as a criticism of England's media practices in particular, though you could definitely extrapolate it to most other kind of tabloids around the world. I, I think to the um, the voyeuristic nature of a lot of the, the media we consume too. And as, as I kind of touched on earlier, there's that whole element of like, you as the viewer are participating in that. Yeah, with, and, and I think with mixed success, you know, in, in terms of how it does that, but I think that was something they were trying to get at. Like, you know, if you're watching this in part because you want to find out if he has sex with the pig, how does that make you complicit in sort of some of the other media you consume, I guess? So is that something that you feel like, do you feel like that's a a detriment to us as as a, a people that, you know, we do have such kind of a reliance on on media in that way? I think at a very base level. The thing that I think people mistake is the idea that this obsession with celebrity and wanting to know more about people is a new thing. Um, certainly technology enables it to an unhealthy degree, I, I think. 
people have you, you can go back to the middle ages and find like the equivalent of um tabloids being published then <laughs> all through europe you know like a, a lot of the popular images we have of people like vlad tepes who was the inspiration for dracula come out of what were essentially tabloids at the time and they were these ridiculous pamphlets that showed him impaling hundreds of people and that sort of thing and even if you go back further, like, you you go back to ancient Rome, like, you know, some of the big historians we look at from the time, like Suetonius, who wrote the Twelve Caesars, um, it was essentially the equivalent of, like, a Woman's Day magazine talking about the emperors, uh, as opposed to, you know, Miley Cyrus or whoever. So, uh, and, I, and I'm sure there's similar, I know there's similar analogues in Japan. Uh, I know there's, sim- there, there would be similar analogues in a lot of other cultures, I suspect, um, uh, though I don't want to don't want to put a finite number on it or anything like that, but but this interest in other people's and famous people's lives is not new. I think the detrimental aspect comes in is is in the degree of voyeuristic participation. I guess you and I are both about the same age, so I imagine you're old enough to remember when stuff like Rotten dot com and that sort of thing was the, was was a was kind of prominent among people of a certain age. Um, and you know, it was essentially these versions of modern day freak shows, and you could see all this really extreme in the case of Rotten violent stuff as opposed to bestiality. <laughs> Um, but you know, you could go on there and see all this really horrific imagery, but it was so decontextualized and no one was terribly interested in in what had actually happened. It was just like, oh, that was shocking. Like next pick, you know. The the thing that really sprung out to me. Have you heard about Arbad Dwyer, who's who's the guy who committed suicide on live TV? No, I I haven't. Okay, so in the late eighties, there was this guy called Arbad Dwyer, and he called a press conference. And as I understand, he'd essentially uh, he was uh, he was in, he was some kind of public official in the states. And he'd been accused of financial impropriety, essentially. He maintained he was innocent, but the evidence against him didn't look good. So he called a press conference where everyone sort of thought he was going to announce his innocence or or make, you know, those kind of claims. But instead, he just whipped out his gun and shot himself in the head. Um, And now that footage is very easily viewed you know, anywhere on the internet if you want to see it. Um, just as you're describing it, I'm sure I have seen it. I probably just didn't, have never, you know, known the name that, <laughs> that goes yeah, with it. But ex- exactly, and it's been used as stuff like album covers. People have sampled audio for, like, you know, it's it's shown up a lot of places, and people will sometimes use it as a punchline to start, like, which which I don't think is great. But um, the, but the the larger context around it has largely been forgotten. Like he was sort of committing suicide as an act of protest. Now, whether or not I feel that was a good idea is sort of beside the point, you know. But his his death ended up being turned into a meme, essentially. And I think that's probably what would happen if, um, you know, if we actually did live in the Black Mirror world. Like I think there'd be an awful lot of memes and just out of context repurposings from it. Yeah, and everyone would forget. Oh, he actually did this as noble sacrifice, or or whatever. It'd be like, oh, the dude who fucked a pig. Um, oh, who was he again? You know, <laughs> like, yeah. As the uh, host of Lupine Transmissions, you know, I, I feel like maybe this is a little bit more in in your wheelhouse as well. But earlier, you talked about you you connected a little bit to things like Faces of Death and Rotten dot com. Why do you think that we don't still have that? as much in today's society and and keep in mind again i'm sure there's still dark corners of the internet where this stuff is (laughs) sought out frequently 
but yeah. do you do you think there's still a market for those things or, or do you think we've kind of moved on from that sort of sideshow curiosity oh i don't i don't think we've moved on at all um i i think it's still there i think it's just expressed differently i i think you could still find this sort of stuff pretty easily like i said you can i i don't know if you still can now but at one time you could go into youtube and watch Arbud dwyer's like press conference where he shoots himself for example i i think there's maybe more like the internet was a bit more of a wild west in the in the late 90s than, yeah. than it is now like but but i think there's still a market for that that's partially why people are interested in those things because we are it's it's very easy to these days in particular to live a very kind of quote-unquote safe life in in the western world right you know a lot of us are very i think people sort out stuff like faces of death and rotten.com because i know for me as a teenager it was kind of like it was a very base thing it's like well what does a dead body look like you know that that kind of thing um and of course, like the people behind Rotten, I think people are pretty sure they know who ran it, but he's never publicly owned it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he essentially saw it as a way, of, as a sort of um, novel way of protecting freedom of speech legislation, I guess, you know, because even though there was plenty of horrific stuff on there, there wasn't really anything that violated freedom of speech or any, any laws per se. It was just kind of people found it personally distasteful. But I will say that I don't think people like to kind of think about that part of themselves. And I'm not saying that's wrong, and I'm not saying that everyone has that desire to engage with this material. But I think that stuff like Black Mirror, particularly this first episode, it's it's a kind of safe way of exploring that part of yourself. As are things like horror films or uh, horror literature or... Um, I, I do think people don't want an outlet to engage with those kind of darker impulses about themselves, and the form that takes is going to vary on the person themselves. So I don't, I don't want to say like, "Oh, go watch Faces of Death; it's awesome," because it's not. It's pretty horrible. But, right. You know, I, I do think people have that impulse. I think it's just maybe more splintered now. Um, you know, an example of it more recently would be all the beheading videos that do the rounds from Islamic State and that kind of thing, like. A lot of people will just go and watch them and they're not really interested in the wider context. They just want to see what it looks like for someone to get decapitated. So, And and I guess maybe that's partially where I'm coming from is sometimes I, I will make overly general statements like, hey, why don't we see this anymore? And the fact is it's because it simply is not something I see very often, you yeah. know, and, and maybe these are more, more common occurrences. It, it does seem like there was a, a phase where people were talking about faces of death a lot and you know, certainly that was an entire underground genre at one point. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Mondo, Mondo films and things right, like certain, that. Right, yeah. Faces of Death was certainly not in a, a vacuum at all. No. And, you know, you don't see as much, you don't really see documentaries that are now built solely around just kind of the macabre like that. You know, it seems like everything wants to be a little more uh, reputable and academic, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and I think, and I think, at a surface level, people that there, there are people who are genuinely interested in being, say, more culturally sensitive. Like the one I remember doing the rounds for years, and you'd see it at every like pop-up DVD stand or VHS stand through the nineties and the aughts was um, Shocking Asia, for example. 
which which is definitely like it, it's stuff that's deliberately meant to other people you know um i think people are more sensitive to to that now to not wanting to do that and to just you know fake footage to to make like i don't know thailand look like this backwards country or something which is good which is good you know uh, and it shouldn't have been what was going on in the first place but yeah it's but i think a lot of it migrated to different corners of the internet and it, and it's not centrally curated anymore unless you're going to like i don't know like reddit and 4chan kind of fulfill that that spot i think like if, if you want to find it it's out there and you know you can go look up medical journals more easily than ever before you know with the internet so i think there's just not maybe the central curator in in the way that it was in the in the late nineties and early aughts because just because of the way the internet works now. I guess there's not a need for people to compile that like there was because now we can just go and look up and find anything we want at any time, really. If you look at exploitation, quote unquote, documentaries that came out in the seventies, like Faces of Death, do you feel like there is a place for them in the modern cinematic canon or do you think those are things that should kind of be left in the the time and place in which they were created that, that's an interesting question because i didn't see it myself till like 2009 i watched it with my dad actually <laughs> so oh, wow yeah i know the lot going on there right so no i we were we were literally at the video shop one night and it it had been banned over here for a long time but it had been recently unbanned and uh had gotten a deluxe dvd release or whatever so dad and i sort of said well you know we'd heard a lot about this like so let's watch it i definitely think it's got less artistic value than something like cannibal holocaust which i definitely question the artistic value of in the first place sure i think it's one of those sort of problematic artifacts that's it's good to remember that it exists and why we shouldn't do that anymore. Do I think we should be giving it deluxe Blu-ray reissues and things like that? That's a more fraught question, I kind yeah. of think, you know, yeah. But I, I don't know that, like, but I'm also not of the attitude that banning it would be a great idea either, you know. I, I think that if you don't acknowledge that these things existed, like, then you you see people just gravitate back to them. And you know, often with the with the same negative effects that the original had. So you know, I'm not saying it's inevitable or anything like that. I just don't don't think that sort of pretending it never existed is a best idea either. And Faces of Death is quite boring too. The things that I remember finding most kind of confronting in it were the sort of um, uh, animal death scenes because they, they sort of show scenes inside a slaughterhouse and that that kind of thing. That was that was not great. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's taken as a whole, it's quite dull. Like, it's an hour and a half of just atrocity after atrocity, and then by the end you're sort of like, oh, yeah, that was pretty gross, I guess, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. You're certainly not left with any sort of good feeling, that's for for sure. It's still it's still a gross film, like, because some of it is real and some of it's quite horrifying, and, and I think sometimes we forget how age doesn't necessarily dilute certain things. But on another level, it's also like some of this is really campy. And if this documentary was made tomorrow, like it would be seen as like really disrespectful. <laughs> and, right. And, as I'm sure it was at the time. But it's a challenging thing that ties to other sort of large questions about challenging media in general. You know, this, this is a debate that does the rounds in the metal community every few months because people have views 
quite graphic imagery on a lot of metal album covers, for example. Like Carcass, on their first couple of albums, have these literal collages that are made out of just photos that the band found in, you know, medical journals and things like that. And they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty gross to look at. I would argue that they were trying to make some larger points there because all the band members at the time were vegans and, and the, there was sort of a larger social messaging there than I think Faces of Death ever had. Right. Um, but, you know, people understandably are sort of like, well, you know, how do I feel about this? Like, I've got literal dead people on my album cover. <laughs> like, you know, is is this okay for me to engage with? And like... It becomes a selling point unto itself for some people. I I think the thing that Black Mirror attempts but doesn't necessarily succeed, in this particular episode anyway, is that it is trying to set a litmus test for the rest of the the series. And if you don't pass it because of you find it grotesque or whatever, then you're not welcome here anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same thing with stuff like Rotten.com or with certain metal albums or with Faces of Death or with Substitute, your favorite piece of problematic media here, whatever it might be. If if you don't pass the litmus test, you don't belong here. And I don't know that that's the best approach to take, but that sort of thing becomes a selling point unto itself for some people. And I don't think that this episode of Black Mirror is entirely successful at critiquing that because they were only, they have subsequently leaned on it so heavily in the marketing. You know? so. Right. What do you think the lesson is here? Is there anything that we can move forward and have learned from all of this? I will say it's good to be able to critique the media you consume and be able to kind of try and look at it from different angles to see why other people might take issue with it or why... Maybe you need to be careful about what you consume. But having grown up in a semi-puritanical environment, (laughs) uh, I'm never going to be personally a huge Puritan. Certainly I have my own personal limits. Um, Certainly there are pieces of media I wish didn't exist because of the the themes or, or things like that inherent in them. As a kind of like white guy in his mid-30s, like I think that I'm you know, in that sort of privileged position of being able to engage with a lot of stuff that not everyone would feel comfortable with, you know, so I want to acknowledge that too. And I don't think the, I don't think there's a problem with sort of having messy art per se. The big thing for me is it's worth having a serious think about who you're funding when you, when you buy or consume media, you know, do you want to be buying albums by racist bands? No. But these are also conversations that people need to have with themselves and think about them quite deeply. And I know where my limits are, and I know where my boundaries are, and I think it's important that people recognise where they where theirs are and also maybe think about why other people might set different boundaries to themselves, I guess. Scrambled Transmissions is written and hosted by Adam Timish, with additional production support from Blake Walker and Ox Audio. 
Very special thanks to our guest, Tom, for watching and discussing the episode, as well as talking about his own personal experience. And of course, thank you for listening to Scrambled Transmissions. If you like the podcast and the episode, please take a moment to rate and review it so it can be shared with others. As always, until next time, watch something weird. Watch something weird.